Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. We are blessed beyond imagination today to have this uh, this gentleman, a buddy of mine, a classmate at, at Notre Dame. I'm just going to read a little bit about his his background. Uh, he's from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, went to Manassas High School. Uh, when we were at Notre Dame, I was studying biology. He was studying electrical engineering, graduated. While, while he was at Notre Dame, <clears throat> he was a finalist in the Olympics uh, uh, qualification uh, in track. He, he was a 100 meter, 200 meter uh, athlete, uh, brilliant. I think he went to the to the finals for the Olympics and had a cramp or something and, and couldn't continue. But he was a very very gifted uh, athlete as well. <laughs> After Notre Dame, he went to MIT and studied uh, information systems and research there. Uh, I think there's there's something else I'm I'm missing, but he might have gone to law school. As well, no, my wife. Went to oh, your wife went to law school. Okay, okay, good man. I got that straight. <laughs> uh, he went to Meharry yep. Medical College, and he is a uh, recently retired laser ophthalmologist. And uh, he invited me about twenty-five years ago to come down to Memphis to have my eyes done. I was too scared to go, so, but. If I would trust anybody with my eyes, it would it would be him. Okay. okay. So, uh, and he he's only a couple of years older than me, so <laughs> he, 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 he fits he fits in our group uh, perfectly. Okay. And uh, so I'll give you uh, William C. Hurd. Oh, I forgot he's he's a brilliant saxophonist. Uh, we played in the. Um, in the Magnificent Seven uh, yes. at Notre Dame, we were a soul band. Yep. And uh, we also played some jazz. He had a, a quintet. I was part of that uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, while he was at MIT, he visited Notre Dame for the Collegiate Jazz Festival as a saxophonist uh, as well. And he's recorded uh, plenty of times and uh, still performs. He's a uh, true renaissance man so here you are william c heard from Memphis. thank you john thank you john appreciate all of it <laughs> um yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad to be here uh first of all uh, uh dr calendar you're well known i i, I did the, took the time to research you and look at all of your accomplishments and uh they're impressive um john called me and asked me to do this. And my, my first thought was to talk about, I, I did a lot of mission work when I was in my practice all over Africa and mostly West Africa. And the last two trips were in Madagascar. So I have a memoir that I just completed entitled Memphis to Madagascar, a memoir. And I just completed it and Notre Dame is possibly gonna, going to publish it for me. But anyway, but after I thought about it, this is a transplant support group. I thought maybe I would talk about, I did quite a bit of corneal transplants when I was in practice. And I thought that might be more interesting. Uh, and if anyone has any questions about my mission trips, I can I can answer those. But uh, I'll just <clears throat> I'll just talk about, um, and by the way, you left out a couple of things uh, that I, I'm kind of proud of. Uh, one is that, <laughs> I don't mean to pat myself on the back or toot my own horn, but I, I still hold the Notre Dame records for the 100 meters and 200 meters after 50 years. Wow. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, <clears throat> and there was another award that I was very proud of 
uh, and it had a lot to do with my mission work. And that was the NCAA Silver Anniversary Award, which they give every year to five athletes who, student athletes who were all Americans in their sport from 25 years before. So I graduated from Notre Dame in 1990, in 1969. So along, uh, so in 1994, I got the award and uh, the co-awardees -award, were Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, Calvin Hill, Grant Hill's father, <laughs> Lee Evans, Olympic champion, Jim Ryan, the, wow. runner, the distance runner. <laughs> and I'm leaving somebody out. Um, Leroy Keys from Purdue. So um, that one one of the awards that I that I'm very proud of. Anyway, so let's get back to. Uh, so I brought a model of the eye. So what I'm going to talk about just briefly is what we do in corneal transplantation because there's a lot of myths. You know, a lot of patients would ask me. Somebody would come in with, say, advanced glaucoma, and they say, "Well, Doctor Harry, why don't you just transplant me an eye?" Well, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work like that, you know. It's like asking somebody to who's paraplegic to, you know, give me a new leg, because the eye is hooked up to the brain via the optic nerve, and we we have no way of replacing nerve tissue right now. We have we haven't gotten that far, but you know, there's a lot of research going on. Anyway, <clears throat> so. This would be the optic nerve here. And inside the eye would be kind of a messed up model here. So <clears throat> this is a model of the eye here. Kind of a, um, let's do it this way. So when a person donates their organs, the eyes are included. And so uh, <clears throat> so here's the eye. The eye is covered with a, 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 a tissue called the sclera. And uh, on top of the sclera, you can see the, the attachments or the muscles that give the eye direction and move in certain directions. And then what covers that is the conjunctiva, where you, if you get a conjunctivitis, that part of the tissue is affected. So now the part of the eye that we implant is the cornea, this part right here, the part that you put a contact lens on top of. And so if you remove this here, this, this is the cornea. This is the part that we transplant. So when a patient dies and donates their organs, the harvest, what's harvested is um, What's harvested is that they'll cut out this portion right here. And they'll test it, make sure that the patient has no previous uh, you know, systemic uh, disease, like infections that might get to the eye tissues. Um, they they look at the uh, they look at the cornea under the microscope and make sure it has the proper number of endothelial cells because if if that if that if it if it's below a certain minimum then that's not good tissue so we so the tissue comes from an eye bank so a person dies donates their organs and the eyes go to the donated eyes go to a an, an eye bank and every major city has an eye bank and it wasn't always like that uh, we have we have one in Memphis but before we had one in Memphis we had to get one from some other nearby larger city. So, and we have to wait on the tissue to get ready. Now, unlike a lot of other transplantations, as you probably know, Dr. Callender, uh, for example, in a kidney or a heart, you have to, you have to be, uh, the blood has to match or something has to match. But with the eyes, it's a little different because this tissue doesn't have any blood vessels in it. So you don't have to worry about matching, you know, matching uh, the blood type or whatever. 
all you got to worry about is is it is it viable tissue? Is it is it uh, is does it have enough uh, endothelial cells? Is it clear under the microscope? And so it's preserved for up to like ten days and and in some kind of preservative and so <clears throat> it's usually readily available now conditions that warrant a, an, a corneal transplant or anything that might opacify this this surface because all of your vision has to come through this cornea all your vision has to come through the cornea and once it gets through the cornea once the light image gets through the cornea it's got to go through this lens here this is a biconvex lens. It's shaped about the size. It's about the size of a little button in re in reality. So this is what turns into a cataract. So if, as we get older, people my age and above, and et cetera, <laughs> John's age, <laughs> this turns into a cataract. This opacifies, and so it's a very simple little operation. I've done tens and thousands of these over my 36 year of practice. Uh, this has to be removed and replaced by an implant, which we measure preoperatively to get the proper power of it. It's almost like a contact lens that goes inside the eye permanently. And so for a person who is extremely nearsighted or extremely farsighted and has cataract surgery, oftentimes they can come out without having to wear glasses. And that's the beauty of cataract surgery. Now, you know, modern day cataract surgery. And most of the time, it's just a little 10 to 15 minute procedure. We use, we're now starting to use a little laser in it. Um, uh, but, um, and by the way, there, there's a, I should have, I should have done some research on this. There was a black female ophthalmologist that died about a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic who didn't get all of her all of her uh due diligence i can't do you know her name dr calendar you know who i'm talking about yeah she's uh actually a hunter college graduate oh and also okay. uh she uh uh from did undergraduate at howard university okay what's her name and uh i can't remember her name now but her yeah. she was the first person to actually do the uh, yeah uh, advanced cataract yeah well, she she didn't get she didn't get her due diligence I don't know she uh, she she was uh, let's put it this way we knew all about her <laughs> now, now, I know y'all know about who were from majority institutions yes. probably weren't as as aware yes, but since she went to Hunter College and right. she was from Howard I knew oh. all about her and I see uh, okay. we honored her and, right all the time great and, great uh, great 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 as you mentioned. She's yeah. one of a kind for some reason. I'm glad to hear that. It may come to me by the time you finish. Okay. So anyway, cataract surgery, that's a whole nother issue, but that's a it's a it's a modern day procedure, nothing to be afraid of. If you're if 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 you pass 60 years old and you your vision starts to get cloudy and glary and hazy, then you probably got a cataract and it needs to come out. Your insurance will pay for it. Uh, they're going to try to sell you on a special type of lens, an intraocular lens to put in. You pay an, another thousand dollars that your insurance company doesn't pay. That may, that will allow you to also read. It's called a multifocal intraocular lens or IOL. But I would I would not, and I and I put in a couple of those, and it's, it's no guarantee. You can't guarantee a hundred percent. You know, I tell the patient, you know. Uh, just you know, just do what just do what the insurance companies will pay for and if, if you have to you just wear reading glasses you know and most people most people agree with that but anyway so let's get back to uh to, to corneal transplantation and okay and I will also kind of mention about glaucoma uh just in passing uh glaucoma is when fluid inside of the eye is called aqueous humor not tears but aqueous humor it's made by some cells that are located in the ciliary complex right here in the in the in the corner of the eye, and so that fluid builds up and builds up, and it's also drained at the same time. So if that 
if that production of the aqueous humor it exceeds the way it's drained, then you're going to get an increase in pressure. And it's increased in eye pressure. We call it intraocular pressure, IOP. And if that pressure stays up too long over, say, 20, 20 pounds per uh, mercury, 20 millimeters of mercury, 20, uh, yeah. Anyway, if it stays above 20, then it starts to destroy the optic nerves. And we can actually, if you look through the, if you look with an ophthalmoscope through the pupil, you can actually see the optic nerve. And the, actually the eye is the only organ in the body, only place in the body where you can actually see active nerves and active blood vessels. Therefore, you can make certain diagnoses. Uh, one of which you can see diabetic retinopathy because you can see the leaking blood vessels from the from the damage done to the small vessels and diabetes. You can also see hypertensive retinopathy. You can see the AV nicking, we call it, where the, where the arterioles cross the venules. It's, it's like a, we call it a nicking, AV nicking. You can see a lot of things. You can see high cholesterol in, in the eye. You can see cholesterol plaques in, in the small vessels. So it's a lot of things you can see just by looking in the eye. Uh, and, and a lot of times um, I have made, you know, in weak, you know, ophthalmologists in general can make diagnoses. And I've had patients come to me all the time. Oh, my vision is all of a sudden, all of a sudden the patient is high, is, is, is farsighted. We call it hypermetropia. Then that's an that could be an indication that their glucose is also high, and so they'll come to me and say, uh, "I can't see uh, all of a sudden." And so I'll determine that they're they're hypermetropic or high or farsighted, and you don't the 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 thing to do the thing not to do is prescribe glasses because if the sugar goes back down to normal then they won't need those glasses. So the thing to do is to send them to the to the internist and let them manage the diabetes. So anyway, so the glaucoma, um, the pressure gets up too high, it can destroy the nerve, and there are no symptoms. And it's more common in Black people. It runs in the family. So, uh, so we got people walking around with pressures of 30, 35, and they don't even know it. And they have glaucoma. And... And the only way we can find it is, so we check everybody for glaucoma that comes into the office, especially black people over 40. Um, we have drops to, to, <clears throat> to manage glaucoma. We have one drop uh, in particular called uh, uh, latanoprost, or it's a drop that you use once a day in both eyes. That, and if that doesn't work, we go to, to, to a second drop. That doesn't work, we go to a third drop. So we have patients that on what we call it maximum medical therapy. And if those drops don't work, then we have to go to either a laser procedure or we laser little holes in the corner called the trabecular meshwork, right in the corner of the eye. With under, under, it doesn't really need require anesthesia. Uh, to lower the pressure. And if that doesn't work, we have to do a filtering procedure called a, um, um, trabeculectomy, where we actually make actually openings and allow the fluid to drain out. So that's a whole nother thing. You know, we have a lot of specialties within ophthalmology. We have glaucoma, we have retina, we have pediatric ophthalmology, we have, you know, strabismus where people come in with crossed eyes or eyes out of line. We have uh, um, plastic, oculoplastic, where people come in with bags under their eyes and want them removed. Uh, um, anyway, so, um, <clears throat> so let's call coma. So now the reason that I did a lot of corneal transplants, and I'm not a corneal specialist, 
I'm a general ophthalmologist. I was a general ophthalmologist, but I was fortunate to have a couple of very, um, I don't know what the word to use, but kind of took me under his wing, Dr. Ralph Hamilton. He, uh, and, and actually, he actually has established the Hamilton Eye Institute here in Memphis, a very well-respected uh, institute. But he's since passed away. But when I was a resident, and by the way, I was the first Black resident at the University of Tennessee ophthalmology program in 1981. And they still only have had about two or three. <laughs> anyway, and that was, it was, they made it rough for me. They made it rough for me. There were people that didn't want me there. Um, there were people not used to having a black doctor with the same credentials that they had, you know, and my, the patients, the black patients at the, at the big hospital, city hospital, uh, uh, were thrilled to see me because the white doctors didn't spend time with them, blah, 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 you know, the whole scenario. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, and that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic for discussion. Um, so anyway, uh, what was I talking about? Um, 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 Oh, residency? Uh, yes. So <clears throat> Dr. Hamilton would call me and say, come, uh, Bill, come and uh, sit with me and, and sit on this case with me. Let's, and, uh, you know, so I would, at every opportunity as a resident, if he calls, I would just go in and sit in on surgery with him. And I, would, I, I learned a ton, a lot of stuff. I learned a ton of stuff without doing a, a fellowship. And I felt comfortable doing these procedures. I mean, I, I could have referred them out, but I was comfortable enough with my own self. And so I did I did tons of corneal transplants and with, with great success, I might add. Um, so uh, getting back to some of the conditions that cause that the person would need a corneal transplant for, okay, injury to the eye, anything that would, scar up this cornea. Uh, I saw a lot of people who sleep in their contact lenses who develop corneal ulcers. And so I, I get on their case every time I get a chance and talk, give these kind of talks. So if you're out there wearing contact lenses, stop sleeping in them. Uh, <clears throat> you, get, you can get a corneal transplant, you can, get a, you can get a corneal ulcer, and if it's right in the center, Obviously, you won't be able to see see through that. So what happens is I have to, I have to. Um, so here's what we do: we we and, and this is done very meticulously <clears throat> with certain instruments. We carve out a circle on the cornea on the donor tissue, and we set it aside, and then we carve out a slightly smaller uh, circle on the on the recipient, on the on the patient's eye. Patient is either put to sleep or the eye is 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 uh, localized. Usually we do these asleep because we usually put the patient to sleep because we don't want a whole lot of movement. <clears throat> and then so we put that tissue, the donor tissue, right on top of the replaced, removed disease tissue. And then we sew it in with the real tiny sutures. It's called tenonylon. It's the smallest, it's the smallest kind of sutures that we have in medicine. And we do this under a microscope. And so you put in four cardinal sutures, you put in one here at 12 o'clock, six o'clock, three o'clock and nine o'clock. And then you sew in about four, uh, about four uh, um, about four places uh, on each quadrant 
And <clears throat> that's kind of that's kind of a very quick and rude way of saying it, but that's corneal transplantation. And it works. Uh, and it works most of the time. And the patient has to be put on steroid eye drops to uh, after the surgery for a certain amount of weeks or months to have it heal. Um, other things that cause uh, corneal opacities, um, other than uh, corneal ulcers, uh, there's something called corneal dystrophy, which is something that you that's probably genetic and probably also something that runs in the family. Um, I see a question about do you work on macular degeneration? Uh, I'll answer that in a second. Uh, corneal dystrophies also sometimes require, we have different levels of corneal transplantation as well. Some that don't require a whole, what we call a penetrating keratoplasty, penetrating keratoplasty. That means uh, penetrating means the whole, the whole tissue has to be replaced. Sometimes it's just the uh, the cornea is this this cornea has five layers of, of tissue. The innermost layer is the endothelium. That's the one that I was saying. Uh, we have to make sure that when we when we harvest it, there's enough of it. The outer layer is the epithelium, just like in a lot of other tissues. That layer can regenerate itself. The inner layer is the most thick, is the thickest layer. That's called the stromal layer. And that layer, if that's damaged, that needs to be replaced. The, the, I mean, that you need a penetrating, a PKP, we call it a penetrating keratoplasty. Uh, there are a lot of other indications for PKP or corneal transplantation. Um, but I'll, I'll stop here and start answering some questions if you have any. Uh, there was one about macular degeneration. Macula, the macula is a part of the retina that's located right smack in the middle of the retina. Here's the eye. Okay, here's the eye. And so this is my right, this is the right eye. You notice how that, you notice how the optic nerve is kind of angled a little bit toward the center? Okay. And so here's, here's the right eye, and then here's the left eye. You see that? Mm -hmm. See how that optic nerve is going toward the center? Yep. So it's going to end up at the optic chiasm. It's a very intricate, very complex. The eyes are so, so interesting. One of the reasons I went into ophthalmology is uh, because of my, I do have an electrical engineering background. And... Um, there's a lot of optics and there's a lot of just interesting stuff in ophthalmology. And there was a guy at Mahari named Dr. Alex Hansen. <laughs> Uh-oh, sound like you know him. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he was one of my te great teachers Whoa. from uh, the Virgin St. Islands. That's St. Thomas. As, and uh, I also a hospital named after just him. recently got uh, the Hansen Award uh, uh, two what? years ago. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because wow. they give it to people who have been around for a long time. And he's the reason I went into ophthalmology. Yeah, he's a he's very, great, very nice man. Incredible guy, brilliant, genius. So I was sitting in his yeah. office. I was sitting in his office one day. I was a I was a junior at Meharry, and he put a, a indirect ophthalmoscope on my head, and he had a patient sitting in the room. He said, "Doctor," he said. Young doctor, look at look, look at this. He put a little biconvex uh, lens in my hand, and he put it in such a way that I could see uh, the whole panoscopic view of the retina. And I was just so amazed by that. That that sold me. So I ended up declaring that as my specialty. That's what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing uh, an externship down at Bascom Palmer in Miami. I ended up coming back up to Boston and doing an externship at Mass Pioneer. And by the way, before I went to Meharry, and this gets this this is the little Howard story here. 
<laughs> before I entered Meharry, I was teaching at Tennessee State University in the business department. I was teaching statistics. I was an assistant professor. And one of the, and I also had a little side thing going on. I was a director of a small business administration office. So I got that, I got that job first with the, with the stipulation that I have to be on the faculty at, at Tennessee State University. So I did that for about three, four years before I went to Meharry. But anyway, so I had no intentions of going to medical school when I, while I was doing that. And so um, when I decided to, I was gonna, so a lot of my, I was doing, I had some side businesses going on <laughs> and uh, a lot of these, a lot of my business people that I was, my clients were doctors. And so I would listen to them, you know, talk about their patient care and all this stuff. And I said, man, I, I, I probably can do that. And so I decided to go to, to apply to medical school. So I applied to Meharry since I was in Nashville. I applied to Howard. I applied to, and I also was interested in going back to Boston to do a bioengineering doctoral program, joint Harvard-MIT. So I had been to MIT and I, I was familiar with Boston, but my wife and I didn't want to go back with all the, the bad weather. And bad, Boston has horrible winters. <laughs> um, so I had an interview at Howard and there was this elderly retired physician who interviewed me. And he looked on my resume and he said, hmm, I see you're a mus musician. So you're going to have to give that up. You can't be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do both of these, man. Come on now. <laughs> and I said to myself, what the, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't say it. I was respectful. But I knew that I wasn't going to give my music up. <laughs> and I'm, you know, so I was put on the waiting list at Howard. So that's the whole story. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but nowadays they look for doctors who have other interests in fine arts. A lot of I have a friend who's on who's a, who's on the admissions committee here at University of Tennessee. They're looking for, you know, medical school candidates who have other interests other than medicine. So anyway, I didn't mean to get off track. Um, macular degeneration, again, so it's, it's such a beautiful thing. I mean, I could talk for days about the anatomy of the eye and, you know, and I was telling you that, that the eyes, that the optic nerve kind of comes at an angle and it hits and they come together at the optic chiasm. And the chiasm is located right below the pituitary gland. So people who have pituitary tumors, if that tumor is large enough, it's going to, it's going to hit that optic chiasm and it's going to cause some very classical uh, visual field defects. It's called a bitemporal hemianopsia. So that your side vision is gone on both sides. It's a beautiful thing, man. And I've seen a couple of these in my practice. Matter of fact, one of my tennis buddies, now golfing buddies, had this. And if it gets to that point, then you have to have it, you have to have the pituitary gland removed. Anyway, so the but but so so the optic nerve comes in at an angle. So what if you go straight from the center of the eye, looking looking through the pupil, and go right straight back, you'll hit you'll hit the macula. Now the macula contains most of the rods and cones. Those are the light sensitive cells in the eye. They're responsible for your color vision and your central vision. So there's a condition. It used to be called senile macular degeneration, <laughs> S SMD, but senile was taken out and now it's called age-related macular degeneration. 
There are two types, basically. There's the dry type, which is the less common. There's the wet type macular degeneration. So, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's usually in people over, I would say, 70, I could be wrong, maybe 60 or 70. Uh, it does tend to, there's, there's a small genetic component, I think. But anyway, it, it can it can mess with, it can destroy your vision and your central vision especially, and um, the only caveat here is that it 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 once it gets a certain level like twenty two hundred or twenty four hundred, it usually doesn't get any worse. But it's treatable. Wet type macular degeneration is treatable with a drug called Avastin, or it's a vaso. Um, it's a it's a drug that <clears throat> keeps new blood vessels from forming because those new blood vessels will leak and they're more fragile. And so if you if you keep those vessels from from growing, and it's a, it's a, it started out as a cancer drug, and so they found the effect of it, and it does work. So it it is effective <clears throat> in macular degeneration, but we're still working on drug that will help dry AMD, but for now we don't have anything. Okay, any questions? Uh, I think uh, uh, John Buchanan identified Patricia Bath as the uh, ophthalmologist that you referred to earlier. Yes, that's her, that's her, Bath. Patricia Bath. Yes, yes. Yeah, who uh, was a legend and- uh, Oh, I bet she was. She's a legend for us. And uh, wow. I think we've been honored to, have someone who has the expertise that you have uh, to tell us about the eye. That that's an uh, organ that uh, yes. is uh, not so well understood by people outside of yes. ophthalmology. Yes, uh, and you you treated it as though it was, was your 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 son or daughter. You know it so well. <laughs> yeah, and it's a delight to hear from someone who is so uh, humble and so uh, distinguished in so many different fields. Well, An athlete, a musician. Uh, what year did you finish Meharry? 1980. Okay, I finished in 63. And this is my 60th year reunion that I'm going to uh, 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 this afternoon, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's so, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, but uh, anyway, it's been such a delight. Uh, uh, I have a, one of my, one of our recent years of surgery. Uh, actually had uh, several corneal transplants because he had uh, the condition that uh, is associated with uh, the commonest uh, reason for a corneal transplant is what what's the condition called when your your eye uh, your eye gets to the point that uh, you have to have a corneal transplant cataract it's a cataract. No, no, cataract. No, no, that's no. separate. No, that, that's separate. That's a ventricular. No, but it, it, he had one of the commonest causes. Of, okay, okay. In which you get a, a corneal transplant. Mm -hmm. It saved his vision. And he's a surgeon now. Good. And good. Uh, so, good. So okay. his story is one that, and of course, my best friend in in, in uh, Howard was actually Bob Copeland, who yeah. you made, who was the chairman of. Of, uh, of ophthalmology, and he did many corneal transplants as as you did, uh, and uh, maybe you, you can tell us a little bit about you know since you have so much expertise about tell us about some of your trips to uh, oh yeah Africa and what you did when you went to okay. Africa and did the eye surgery. Sure, sure. Um, the last two trips were very gratifying. All the trips were gratifying to go places where you really need it, where there's no, I went to places where they had not, you know, they're not only they had not, they didn't have ophthalmologists, they don't have doctors. Uh, so um, I'll talk about, I'll talk about Madagascar because that's, that's one of the, that's the last two places that I went. There were, uh, Madagascar is a very beautiful, large island off the south 
east coast of Africa. It's a, up on the other side of the Indian Ocean. It's considered an African country. It's a mixture of people with Polynesian, uh, Indonesian. Uh, the people have skin like you and me. They got straight hair. It's a very poor country. It's and there were only two ophthalmologists in this whole on the whole on the whole in the whole country. Um, when I got the award with Kareem and Lee Evans, Lee Evans was living there, and he and when at the at the at the award ceremony in San Antonio. He said, well, Bill, why don't you come to, why don't you bring a team down to Madagascar? I said, okay, well, let me look into it. So we did. And we started, when I said we, there were two other uh, doctors, not ophthalmologists in Memphis that, that I had gone on of previous trips to West Africa with, Dr. Lawrence Madlock and Dr. Steve Cole. Steve Cole is an allergist. Lawrence Matlock is uh, from Wesleyan and uh, Baylor Medical School, a very brilliant guy who is well-read, just knows everything. But anyway, he so the three of us packed our bags. But before that, we, pre we prepared. Because to get through these, some of these African countries, you know, it's a lot of corrupt government. There's a lot of corruption in the... And there's something you have to deal with. I mean, we, we did it every time we did it. We have to face, you know, customs, trying to get stuff through customs. And just, so there's a lady named Shirley Barnes, who was the ambassador to Madagascar. And uh, so we got in touch with her, black lady. And so she helped us. We, we filled up a container we got donations from the VA hospital here. We got donations from, from drug companies. We filled up this big container. And we had it shipped to Madagascar. So that it'll be there by the time we got there. Beautiful thing. And everything went fine. We stayed with her at the, U, at the US em, uh, embassy in Madagascar. Stayed there for two weeks. We did tons of, I did tons of cataract surgery. They saw other patients with other health issues. Uh, one of the early cases that I did, and I write about this in my book, and as a matter of fact, I started my book off with this statement. There was an elderly Madagascar lady who I did. She had hand motion cataracts. Now, when I say hand motion, that means that the best she could see was this. She couldn't count my fingers. She could only see hand movement. We call that HM, hand motion. That's worse than 2400. That's, you know. Anyway, I couldn't do both eyes. So I had to do one eye because there were so many other patients that needed treatment. So I, I did cataract surgery on her and I put a patch on the eye. And the next morning, they, they wait up. And these patients would come from miles away. So they wouldn't, they knew we were coming because everything was prepared for us. And I took the patch off and she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, I could, I saw my granddaughter for the first time. And so then I started crying. It's that kind of thing that <laughs> It makes you want to go back and go back and go back. So, I mean, and, I, and that that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, these patients would bring, they, they're very poor people. They would bring food from their farm, their gardens, and, and give it to us. And we, you know, no, you know, we don't, we don't want anything. We're here to help, you know. And it's a beautiful thing, man. If you ever get a chance, I would tell all the young doctors, if you ever get a chance, do do some mission work. Yeah, I started off my career uh, in Africa and uh, West Africa and uh, okay. in Port Harcourt, Nigeria. So oh, I'm Port Harcourt, okay. 
So I know exactly what you're talking about. One of my best friends is from Port Tucker. Yeah. So. Tony Womba do. Yes. Daryl has a question. Okay. Morning, Dr. Hurd. Hi, Daryl. Uh, really enjoyed everything that you've had to say. Um, let's see. I'll just, I got a whole list of questions, but I'll just do a couple of them so other people can jump in. Okay. <laughs> Did I hear you say that elevated blood sugar levels can increase intraocular pressure? No. No, I said that elevated blood sugar levels can make you temporarily farsighted. Okay. No, the blood the blood sugar has no connection with intraocular pressure. Intraocular pressure is that's glaucoma. Uh elevated blood sugar is diabetes and that can be detected looking in the eye. And so that can lead to, you know, diabetes out of control can lead to diabetic retinopathy, which can cause blindness. Okay. Uh, speaking of retinopathy, uh, hypertension is also a possible yes. cause of retinopathy, right? That's correct. That's correct. Good, good okay. question. Yeah. Could you describe some of the symptoms of retinopathy? Uh, very similar to the diabetic retinopathy. Uh, and visually, you might not see anything. You, you, you might, so systemically, you're going to probably get the symptoms quicker than you would in the eye. I mean, you know, undiagnosed hypertension is a silent killer. So you might get a stroke or you might get a heart attack before you get the complications, before you get symptoms in the eye, but the manifestation but from hypertensive retinopathy. Good question also. So people may not know that they have retinopathy. Yeah. Uh, if Well, if they have blurred vision, floaters, uh, fluctuating yeah. vision, dark or uh -huh. empty areas yeah. in the vision or vision uh -huh. loss, they yeah. may have retinopathy and not know it. You're correct. So the key thing is what? Go get a check. Go get, get regular checks. Okay. Okay, the normal... Can the normal wearing of contact lenses damage the cornea? No, not really. No. You need to realize, though, I tell people this all the time, contact lenses is a foreign body. It's not supposed to be on your eye. Uh, and if you sleep in your contacts, that's, 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 that's just even worse. Because you, your eyes are closed. You don't need them while you're sleeping. Your eyes are closed, so it's a warm, moist environment, conducive for bacterial growth. And that's what happens. I got one very intelligent black female attorney that slept in her contacts for months. And she was just a stubborn lady. And I came in, she came in with a corneal ulcer. And uh, she almost lost her eye. I had to put her on very aggressive antibiotic therapy. And uh, are you still running and playing the sax? I'm still playing the sax. Music is my first love. Let's get that uh, clear right now. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't giving up music for nobody. I mean, <laughs> no, I, when I get through with this, with this session, I'm going to practice my horn. I, look, yeah, I'll show you my horns here. See my saxophones? Yeah. My son plays saxophone. Okay. Well. Yeah, we, we could actually put a group together with, <laughs> with the folks we have on, on the uh, session right now. French horn, keyboard, <laughs> vocals. I'm going, I've been doing a lot of traveling uh, lately. I'm going to Hilton Head, South Carolina. I'm going to play at a place called the Jazz Corner. I don't know if you've ever been there, but, and I do that often. I have a friend named Charles Curl, who I met, who I met when I was at MIT, and we had a group. We had a jazz group. Uh, we played around Boston, and we hip stayed. We stayed in contact ever since. So, hip pocket, right? Hip pocket, right, right. Oh, oh by the way, some my music can be hip pocket. Uh, Return of the hip actually is another CD that can be seen on Spotify. And a lot of my stuff can be uh, heard on YouTube if you just type in Bill Hurd and jazz. 
So just type in Bill Hurd. You might get you might get a lot of my. I have a lot of stuff on YouTube. But I'm not, I know I don't run anymore. <laughs> uh, I play a lot of golf. Can I uh, ask you? Uh, this is a very very interesting presentation. I'm telling you. I wanted to ask you about your time and the hundred meter. Ten one. Not bad at all. Ten one. That's that's from nineteen sixty eight now. Okay, and look, my time in the hundred yard. Okay. Was ten two. <laughs> okay, so when I was in high school at Manassas High School, <laughs> and uh, Manassas was named after the Battle of Manassas, I think. There's the Manassas, Virginia, isn't it? Anyway, so um, when I was a senior in high school, I was all set to go to MIT on an academic scholarship, on a full ride. I was a math, I was a math whiz. And I ran a 9-3 100-yard dash. Wow. Broke Jesse Owens' record. Mm. But it was, a, it was a small meet, it was a triangular meet, and it was all black. Because I grew up in a segregated Memphis in the early 60s. We had all, Manassas was all black. We had all black teachers. We didn't have a track. We didn't have a, but anyway, I won the state and I, I ran a 9-3, 100-yard dash. So the track coach from Notre Dame came down to visit, to watch me run and to recruit me. And so I, I was I was recruited by every major college that had a track team. Uh, UCLA, Rayford Johnson wrote me on a long ladder trying to get me to come there. Uh, Frank Budd from Villanova uh, wrote me a letter. I went to West Point at Manassas. We had something similar to ROTC. It was called NDCC, National Defense Cadet Corps. And I was a battalion commander of that. A student a lieutenant colonel. So I, I took a trip to West Point. I got an appointment from our local congressman here. So, but anyway, I, my heart was set on MIT. But after I ran the M, the 9-3, then I, I decided to go to Notre Dame because I thought that Notre Dame had a nice mixture of academics and sports. So I went to Notre Dame and uh, I played football one year at the dismay of my track coach. Eric Prosegan came over to track practice one day and say, uh, Bill Hurd, um, I'm Eric I'm Prosegan. I said, sir, I know who you are. <laughs> he said would you, like to, <laughs> said, would you like to be a part of the football team next year? I said, sure. So I played football in, in 1967. And I played wide receiver under Jim Seymour, who was the All-American wide receiver. And my quarterbacks were uh, Terry Hanratty and and uh, Joe Theismann. Anyway, I had a nice career at Notre Dame. Um, and as John pointed out, uh, in the 100-meter in the finals in Lake Tahoe, U.S. Olympic trials, I finished fifth in the 100 meters at 10-1. And the top four people, uh, Jim Hines, Mel Pender, Charlie Green, and Ronnie Ray Smith ended up going on to win the gold medal in the four by 100 relay. So I missed the, <laughs> I missed the gold medal. Not only did I miss going to the Olympics, I missed the gold medal by one man. <laughs> yeah, we know Joe Theismann around here. Oh yeah, he's not the most gracious guy, but you know, he's got a, he's got a history. He wasn't the best black guy at, at at Notre Dame, and he's still not the best black guy around here in Memphis. He married he lives in Memphis, by the way. He married a girl from here, I think. Well, maybe um, you know he had this injury where he got both legs broken. In yeah, football. Play. Yeah, yeah. So. Deservingly so. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I just subscribed to the YouTube channel Bill Hurd at Bill Hurd 1088. It looks like uh, two days ago you uploaded That's What Friends Are For. 
Yes. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> that was quick. Well, Daryl's very modest also. Daryl, it looks like I know you, Daryl. He, he's an accomplished uh, keyboardist. Uh-oh. And vocalist. And he's got plenty of recordings as well. Uh-oh. Well, next time I come and visit you, John, maybe we can all get together, man. Well, Daryl's in, in Chicago. I'm in Chicago. Oh, you are? Okay. Well, I go to Notre Dame as a as a visiting artist every semester. You know Larry Dwyer, John? Oh, yeah. yeah. He has a jazz yeah. class that, that I play at every semester. And so maybe I'll, I can come through Chicago. Yeah, I'd love to see you. Yeah, I'll get your information from John. All right, That'd be great. Awesome hookup for, for real. <laughs> My goodness, what haven't you done, Mister <laughs> Now I can tell you, my wife is even more accomplished than me. Ryanette. Ryanette. She she's a she's a judge. She's a circuit court judge here in Memphis. While I was at Meharry, what? Well, okay, first of all, she went to Mount Holyoke. Then she went to Harvard while I was at MIT. And then while I was in Meharry, she was teaching at Fisk. Then she went on from Fisk to when we moved to Memphis. She was on the faculty at University of Memphis. Then she decided to go to law school. She was the first law, a law review editor, first black. And then she decided to go to be a judge. Um, so now she's a sitting judge. And I have two boys, uh, my oldest boy, Bill Jr. Both of them started out at Notre Dame. Bill Jr. ended up going graduating from Xavier. He worked in my office actually for 25 years or so with, alongside me as an opt optician. Ryan <clears throat> finished Notre Dame in 2005 with a double degree in Japanese and computer science. And he's out in LA now doing his dream job as a computer animator and visual effects artist. Uh, he's got, so he's got credits on a lot of uh, movies. He works, for, he works for Digital Domain. Any other questions for Dr. Hearn? Yes, uh, good morning. This is Elizabeth. I, yes, I have a question. Hi, Elizabeth. First of all, uh, Dr. Hurd, yes. I want to thank you, my Southern brother, <laughs> <laughs> for sharing your gift, especially the eye. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh -huh. My daughter is on the phone. Um, okay. And she was born in Memphis. Oh. But, but she also had a concern about my granddaughter. Okay. About uh, her situation that's going on with some things. Nikki, can you hear me? Can you hear us? Okay. Uh, she's on the phone. I'm going to have her talk to you now, Dr. Hurd. Go ahead, Nikki. Okay. Hi, Dr. Hurd. Can you hear me? Hi, Nikki. I'm, I can hear you. Okay, great. Good morning. So um, I have a 11-year-old daughter. She'll be 12 in September. And I recently, this week, just took her to her annual eye appointment to the obstetrician. Okay. And so uh, she indicated that her eye, her eye view, you know, is almost 20-20. Right? Okay. She said her eyes look healthy. There's nothing wrong. However, my daughter has um, acid reflux. And so what she told the doctor is that she notices that it's almost like a, like a rainbow of light that kind of flashes across her eyes. And mm -hmm. it, it, it will happen in a matter of seconds. Like, it, it won't stay very long. Yeah. But when that happens, when that flash of colors happens across her eyes, mm -hmm. it is an indication that what generally happens is like a trigger or a domino effect. The light happens, her head hurts, then her acid reflux or her stomach starts hurting. You know what? That sounds almost like migraines, almost. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what the obstetrician said. She says some type of ocular migraine. And so, of course, as a mother, I was like, what? Yeah. Well, I, I would recommend that you 
go see a, a neurologist. Take take your take that child to go see a neurologist. N neurologist, N-E-U-R-O, neurologist. And I think they may even have pediatric neurologists. Okay. Uh, she's in Memphis. No, we live. We Nick was born in Memphis, but where's, we've the, been, where's the child right now? What's we're city? in Washington D.C. Oh, okay, okay. I don't, I don't know anybody up there, but no. Take ask you ask your pediatrician or whoever could they refer her to a neurologist? That would be your best bet. Okay, great. Yeah. Anything? Think there's a major cause of a concern. Well, you know how migraines are. They come and go. Um, the thing you don't want to do is ignore it, though, uh, especially if they increase. It could be, you know, and, 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 and I'm just saying that that's a pre, that's a the pre, 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 preliminary diagnosis. I don't know, just not from, you know, not being able to examine the child. But okay. in a child, migraines is probably more unusual. And so I would, it, it's not life-threatening, but it is of concern, okay. you know. What do you think, Dr. Callender? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. 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 I will make that appointment. So this generally happens. Uh, a couple of years ago, we just when she was a toddler, she had uh -huh. issues, and we thought it was lactose. And we found out as time went on, mm -hmm. it was acid reflux. So I'm very, very conscious of her diet. Yes. And you know how much acid, like spaghetti sauce and ginger yeah. and all that stuff that she intakes. I'm always yeah. very conscious of her diet. Yeah. And she is now. She, she even says, hey, mommy, can I have this? I, I think I can't have this because I just had this. I got you. Well, give, um, all, give all that information to the neurologist. So, um, so it won't trigger her acid reflux, but okay, I definitely yeah. give, give all that information to the neurologist as well about the diet. Give all that information. Okay. Okay, you're welcome. Doctor, hey. heard, uh, can you name some of the um, saxophonists that you like to uh, listen to, like possibly uh, Kirk Whalen or? Yeah, Kirk Whalen is here in Memphis. Uh, I'm on one of his albums, at, at, by the way. Okay. Uh, Into My Soul uh, CD, uh, I'm playing baritone sax. Okay. Uh, so I'm very good friends with, with Kirk Whalen. Uh, Charles Lloyd is my uncle. Mm -hmm. You ever heard of Charles Lloyd? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, no, I listened to um, this early this morning. I was listening to Joshua Redman. Mm -hmm. I listened to old, I listened to John Coltrane still. I, I still listen to Bird and Cannonball, the old guys. The newer guys, I listen to people like Eric Alexander. Um, uh, I listen to a lot of smooth jazz, smooth jazz people like uh, Everett Harp. Uh, I, I just listen. I, I listen a lot, and I try to pull away, pull some of that stuff, and put it in my own vocabulary. Any other questions for Doctor Hurt? I have a question, Bill. Yeah. Uh, tell me about floaters. Okay. And. Uh, because, I mean, sometimes I, I, I think there's insects in the kitchen. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? I got them, too. I got them, too. Tell me. Tell me about floaters. That. Another word for floaters is posterior vitreous detachment. Posterior PVD. Posterior vitreous. So posterior meaning in the back of the eye. Uh, no, in the back, inside of the eye. Mm -hmm. In the back of inside of the eye. Right here. So this whole space is occupied by something called vitreous. And that vitreous is very loosely attached by the hyaloid phase with the retina. And so as we get older, and depending on how, if the, if the eyeball is larger, if you're very nearsighted, those attachments can come loose. And so what you have is folds in the back part of the vitreous face. And those and so it's like in the jet, this, this vitreous is like jelly. It's like clear jelly. So if you look to the left, 
those floaters are going to go to the left. If you look to the right, those, it's going to go, it's going to follow your field of vision. Not to worry. Those are very common. We tend to not to do anything about those because most of the time, most people have good vision. They're just annoying. So you most of the time you won't notice them. So just leave them alone. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Any other questions for this eminent uh, ophthalmologist and musician <laughs> and athlete? <laughs> uh, any other questions for you? Yeah. Yeah.